Story six of Retief, Intergalactic Diplomat in Space. Ed Reed Short Sci-Fi, Volume Five. The Frozen Planet by Keith Lama, Part Two. Chapter Four. Retief awoke at a tap on his door. It's me, Mister Chip. Come on in. The chef entered the room, locking the door. You should have had that door locked. He stood by the door, listening, then turned to Retief. You want to get the Jorgensen's purty bag, don't you, mister? That's right, Chip. Mr. Tony gives the captain a real hard time about old score. The sweaties didn't say nothing. Didn't even act surprised, just took the remains and pushed off. But Mr. Tony and the other crook they call Marbles, they was fit to be tied, took the captain in his cabin and talked loud at him for half an hour. Then the captain come out and give some orders to the mate. Retief sat up and reached for a cigar. Mr. Tony and Score were pals, eh? He hated Score's guts, but with him it was business. Mister, you got a gun? A two-millimeter needler, why? The orders Captain give was to change course for Alabaster. We're bypassing Jorgensen's worlds. We'll feel the course change any minute. Retief lit the cigar, reached under the mattress, and took out a short-barreled pistol. He dropped it in his pocket, looked at Chip. Maybe it was a good thought at that. Which way to the captain's cabin? This is it, Chip said softly. You want me to keep an eye on who comes down the passage? Retief nodded, opened the door and stepped into the cabin. The captain looked up from his desk and then jumped up. What do you think you're doing, busting in here? I hear you're planning a course change, Captain. You've got damn big ears. I think we'd better call in at Jorgensen's. You do, huh? The captain sat down. I'm in command of this vessel, he said. I'm changing course for Alabaster. I wouldn't find it convenient to go to Alabaster, Retief said. So just hold your course for Jorgensen's. Not bloody likely. Your use of the word bloody is interesting, Captain. Don't try to change course. The Captain reached for the mic on his desk, pressed the key. Power section, this is the Captain, he said. Retief reached across the desk, gripped the Captain's wrist. Tell the mate to hold his present course, he said softly. Let go my hand, buster. The captain snarled. Eyes on Retief's. He eased the drawer open with his left hand, reached in. Retief kneed the drawer. The captain yelped and dropped the mic. You busted it, you and one to go, Retief said. Tell him. I'm an officer of the merchant service. You're a cheap jack who sold his bridge to a pack of back alley hoods. You can't put it over, Hick. Tell him. The captain groaned and picked up the mic. Captain to power section, he said. Hold your present course until you hear from me. He dropped the mic and looked up at Retief. It's eighteen hours before we pick up Jorgensen control. You're going to sit here and bend my arm the whole time? Retief released the captain's wrist and turned to the door. Chip, I'm knocking the door. You circulate around. Let me know what's going on. Bring me a pot of coffee every so often. I'm sitting up with a sick friend. Right, mister. Keep an eye on that Jasper. He's slippery. What are you going to do? The captain demanded. Retief settled himself in a chair. Instead of strangling you as you deserve, he said, I'm going to stay here and help you hold your course for Jorgensen's worlds. The captain looked at Retief. He laughed a short bark. Then I'll just stretch out and have a little nap, farmer. If you feel like dozing off sometime during the next eighteen hours, don't mind me. Retief took out the needler and put it on the desk before him. If anything happens that I don't like, he said, I'll wake you up with this. Why don't you let me spell you, mister? Chip said. Four hours to go, yeah? You're going to have to be on your toes to handle the landing. I'll be all right, Chip. You get some sleep. 
Nope, many's the time I stood four or five watches running back when I was your age. I'll make another round. Reetie stood up, stretched his legs, paced the floor, stared at the repeater instruments on the wall. Things had gone quietly so far, but the landing would be another matter. The captain's absence from the bridge during the highly complex manoeuvring would be difficult to explain. The desk speaker crackled. Captain, officer of the watch here. Ain't it about time he's getting up here with the orbit figures? Reetief nudged the captain. He woke with a start, sat up. What's that? He looked wild-eyed at Reetief. Watch officer wants orbit figures, Reetief said, nodding toward the speaker. The captain rubbed his eyes, shook his head, picked up the mic. Reetief released the safety on the needler with an audible click. Watch officer, I'll, uh, get some figures for you right away. I'm, uh, busy right now. What the hell are you talking about, busy? The speaker blared. You ain't got any figures ready. You'll have a hell of a time getting them up in the next three minutes. You forgot your approach pan or something? I guess I overlooked it, the captain said, looking sideways at Reetief. I've been busy. One for your side, Reetief said. He reached for the captain. I'll make a deal, the captain squalled. Your life... Retief took aim and slammed a hard right to the captain's jaw. He slumped to the floor. Retief glanced around the room, yanked wires loose from a motile lamp, trussed the man's hands and feet, stuffed his mouth with paper and taped it. Chip tapped at the door. Retief opened it and the chef stepped inside, looking at the man on the floor. The Jasper tried something, huh? Figured he would. What are we going to do now? The captain forgot to set up an approach, Chip. He outfoxed me. If we overrun our approach pattern, Chip said, you can't make all bit of Jorgensen's an automatic, and a manual approach. That's out, but there's another possibility. Chip blinked. Only one thing you could mean, mister. But cutting out on a lifeboat in deep space is no picnic. They're on the port side aft, right? Chip nodded. Oh, damn, he said. Who's got the tater salad? We'd better tuck the skipper away out of sight. In the locker. The two men carried the limp body to a deep storage chest, dumped it in, closed the lid. He won't suffocate. Lid's a lousy fit. Retief opened the door, went into the corridor, chipped behind him. Should not be nobody around now, the chef said. Everybody's manning approach stations. At the D-deck companionway, Retief stopped suddenly. Listen, Chip cocked his head. I don't hear nothing, he whispered. Sounds like a sentry posted on the lifeboat deck, Retief said softly. It's taken, mister. I'll go down. Stand by, Chip. Retief started down the narrow steps, half stair, half ladder. Halfway, he paused to listen. There was a sound of slow footsteps, then silence. Retief palmed the needler, went down the last steps quickly, emerged in the dim light of a low-ceilinged room. The stern of a five-man lifeboat bulked before him. Freeze you! A cold voice snapped. Retief dropped rolled behind the shelter of the lifeboat as the whine of a power pistol echoed off metal walls. A lunge, and he was under the boat, on his feet. He jumped, caught the quick-access handle, hauled it down. The outer port cycled open. Feet scrambled at the bow of the boat. Retief whirled and fired. The guard rounded into sight and fell headlong. Above, an alarm bell jangled. Retief stepped on a stanchion, hauled himself into the open port. A yell rang, then the clatter of feet on the stair. "'Don't shoot, mister!' Chip shouted. Well, clear, Chip, Retief called. Hang on, I'm coming with you. Retief reached down, lifted the chef bodily through the port, slammed the lever home. The outer door whooshed, clanged shut. Take number two, tie in, I'll blast her off, Chip said. Been for a hundred abandoned ship drills. Retief watched the chef flip levers, pressed a fat red button. The deck trembled under the lifeboat. 
Blew the bay doors, Chip says, smiling happily. That'll call them Jaspers down. He punched a green button. Look out, Jorgensen's. With an air-splitting blast, the stern rockets fired. A sustained agony of pressure. Abruptly there was silence, weightlessness. Contracting metal pinged loudly. Chip's breathing rasped in the stillness. Put nine G's there for ten seconds, he gasped. I gave her a full emergency kick-off. Any moment aboard our late host? A pop gun. Time they get their wind, we'll be clear. Now all we got to do is sit tight till we pick up an R&D from Sphere Tower. Maybe four or five hours. Chip, you're a wonder, Reedy said. This looks like a good time to catch that nap. Me too, Chip said. Mighty peaceful here, ain't it? There was a moment's silence. Done, Chip said softly. Retief opened one eye. Sorry you came, Chip. Left my best carving knife jammed up between Marble's ribs, the chef said. Comes of doing things in a hurry. Chapter 5 The blonde girl brushed her hair from her eyes and smiled at Retief. I'm the only one on duty, she said. I'm Anne-Marie. It's important that I talk to someone in your government, miss, Retief said. The girl looked at Retief. The men you want to see are Tove and Bo Bergman. They'll be at the lodge by nightfall. Then it looks like we go to the lodge, Retief said. Lead on, Anne-Marie. What about the boat? Chip asked. I'll send someone to see to it tomorrow, the girl said. You're some girl, Chip said admiringly. Down there six feet, ain't you? And built too, what I mean. They stepped out the door into a whipping wind. Let's go across to the equipment shed and get parkers for you, Anne-Marie said. It'll be cold on the slopes. Yeah, Chip said, shivering. I've heard you folks don't believe in riding every time you want to go a few miles uphill in a blizzard. It will make us hungry, Anne-Marie said. Then Chip will cook a wonderful meal for us all. Chip blinked. Been cooked you too long, he muttered. Didn't know it showed on me that way. Behind the sheds across the wind-scoured ramp, abrupt peaks rose, snow blanketed. A faint trail led across white slopes, disappearing into low clouds. The lodge is above the cloud layer, Anne-Marie said. Up there the sky is always clear. It was three hours later, and the sun was burning the peaks red, when Anne-Marie stopped, pulled off her woolen cap and waved at the vista below. There you see it, she said. Our valley. It's a mighty purty sight. Chip gasped. Anything this tough to get a look at ought to be. Anne-Marie pointed. There, she said. A little red house by itself. Do you see it, Retief? It is my father's homemaker. Retief looked across the valley. Gaily painted houses nestled together, a puddle of colour in the bowl of the valley. I think you've led a good life there, he said. Anne-Marie smiled brilliantly. And this day, too, is good. Retief smiled back. Yes, he said, this day is good. But don't say a bit when I get my feet up that big fire you was talking about, Annie, Chip said. They climbed on, crossed a shoulder of broken rock, reached the final slope. Above, the lodge sprawled, a long, low structure of heavy lugs outlined against the deep blue twilight sky. Smoke billowed from stone chimneys at either end, and yellow light gleamed from the narrow windows, reflected on the snow. Men and women stood in groups of three or four, skis over their shoulders. Their voices and laughter rang in the icy air. Anne-Marie whistled shrilly. Someone waved. Come, she said. Meet all my friends. A man separated himself from the group, walked down the slope to meet them. Anne-Marie, he called. Welcome. It was a long day without you. He came up to them, hugged Anne-Marie, smiled at Retief. Welcome, 
he said. Come inside and be warm. They crossed the trampled snow to the lodge and pushed through a heavy door into a vast low-beamed hall, crowded with people, talking, singing, some sitting at long plank tables, others ringed around an eight-foot fireplace at the far side of the room. Anne-Marie led the way to a bench near the fire. She made introductions and found a stool to prop Chip's feet near the blaze. Chip looked around. I've never seen so many pretty gals before, he said delightedly. Poor Chip, one girl said. His feet are cold. She knelt to pull off his boots. Let me rub them, she said. A brunette with blue eyes raked a chestnut from the fire, cracked it and offered it to Retief. A tall man with arms like oak roots passed heavy beer tankards to the two guests. Tell us about the places you've seen, someone called. Chip emerged from a long pull at the mug, heaving a sigh. Well, he said, I'll tell you, I've been in some places. Music started up, rising above the clamour. Come, Retief, Anne-Marie said. Dance with me. Retief looked at her. I thought exactly, he said. Chip put down his mug and sighed. Don't have ever felt right at home so quick before, he said. It seems like these folks know all about me. He scratched behind his right ear. And he must have called them and told them our names and all. He lowered his voice. There's some kind of trouble in the air, though. Some of the remarks they pass sounds like they're looking to have some trouble with the sweaties. Don't seem to worry them none, though. Chip, Reedy said. How much do these people know about the sweaty? Dunno, Chip said. We used to touch down here regular. But I always just set in a galley and worked on ship models or something. I hear the sweaties been nosing around here some, though. Two girls came up to Chip. Hey, I gotta go now, mister, he said. These girls got idea I ought to take a hand in the kitchen. Smart girls, Reedy said. He turned as Anne-Marie came up. Paul Bergman and Tove are not back yet, she said. They stayed to ski after moonrise. A moon is something, Retief said. Almost like daylight. They will come soon now. Shall we go out to see the moonlight on the snow? Outside, long black shadows fell like ink on silver. The top of the cloud layer below glared white under the immense moon. Our sister world, Gota, Anne-Marie said. Nearly as big as Freya. I would like to visit it some day, although they say it's all stone and ice. Anne-Marie, Retief said, how many people live on Jorgensen's worlds? About fifteen million. Most of us here on Svea. There are mining camps and ice fisheries on Gota. No one lives on Vasa and Skone, but there are always a few hunters there. Have you ever fought a war? Anne-Marie turned to look at Retief. You are afraid for us, Retief. She said. The Soweti will attack our worlds, and we will fight them. We have fought before. These planets were not friendly ones. I thought the Soweti attack would be a surprise to you, Retief said. Have you made any preparation for it? We have ten thousand merchant ships. When the enemy comes, we will meet them. Retief frowned. Are there any guns on this planet? Any missiles? Anne Marie shook her head. Bo Bergman and Tove have a plan of deployment. Deployment, hell! Against a modern assault force, you need modern armament. Look, Anne-Marie touched Retief's arm. They're coming now. Two tall, grizzled men came up the slope, skis over their shoulders. Anne-Marie went forward to meet them, Retief at her side. The two came up, embraced the girl, shook hands with Retief, put down their skis. Welcome to Svea, Tove said. Let's find a warm corner where we can talk. 
Retief shook his head, smiling, as a tall girl with coppery hair offered a vast slab of venison. I've caught up, he said, for every hungry day I ever lived. Bo Bergman poured Retief's beer mug full. Our captains are the best in space, he said. Our population is concentrated in half a hundred small cities all across the planet. We know where the Soweti must strike us. We will ram their major vessels with unmanned ships. On the ground we will hunt them down with small arms. An assembly line turning out penetration missiles would have been more to the point. Yes, Bo Bergman said, if we had known. How long have you known a Soweti were planning to hit you? Tove raised his eyebrows. Since this afternoon, he said. How did you find out about it? That information is supposed in some quarters to be a well-guarded secret. Secret? Tove said. Chip pulled at Retief's arm. Mister, he said in Retief's ear. Come here a minute. Retief looked at Anne-Marie, across at Tove and Bo Bergman. He rubbed the side of his face with his hand. Excuse me, he said. He followed Chip to one side of the room. Listen, Chip said. Maybe I'm going bats, but I'll swear there's something funny here. I'm back there mixing a sauce, and only me and the devil, and I'd be dogged if them gals don't pass me every damn spice I need without me saying a word. Come to put my souffle in the oven, she's already set, right on the button at 350. And just now I'm sitting there looking at them bending over a tub of apples, snazzy little brunette named Layla. Don't if she don't turn around and say, Chip gulped, never mind, point is, his voice nearly faltered, it's almost like these folks was reading my mind. Retief patted Chip on the shoulder. Don't worry about your sanity, old timer, he said. That's exactly what they're doing. Chapter 6 We never tried to make a secret of it, Poe said, but we haven't advertised it either. It really isn't much, Bo Bergman said. Not the mutant ability, our scholars say. Rather, it's a skill we've stumbled on, a closer empathy. We are few and far from our old homeworld. We've had to learn to break down the walls we had built around our minds. Can you read the Soweti? Retief asked. Tove shook his head. They're very different from us. It's painful to touch their minds. We can only sense the subvocalized thoughts of a human mind. We've seen very few of the Soweti, Bo Bergman said. The ships have landed and taken on straws. They say little to us, but we felt their contempt. They envy us our worlds. They come from a cold land. And Marie says you have a plan of defense, Retief said. A sort of suicide squadron idea, followed by guerrilla warfare. It's the best we can devise, Retief. If there aren't too many of them, it might work. Retief shook his head. It might delay matters, but not much. Perhaps, but our remote control equipment is excellent, and we have plenty of ships, albeit unarmed. And our people know how to live on the slopes, and how to shoot. There are too many of them, Tove, Retief said. They breed like flies, and according to some sources, they mature in a matter of months. They've been feeling their way into the sector for years now. Set up outposts on a thousand or so minor planets, cold ones, the kind they like. They want your world because they need living space. At least your warning makes it possible for us to muster some show of force, sweet teeth, Bo Bergman said. But it's better than death by ambush. Retief must not be trapped here, Anne-Marie said. His small boat is useless now. He must have a ship. Of course, Tove said, and my mission here, Retief said. Retief! A voice called. A message for you. The operator has phoned up a gram. Retief unfolded the slip of paper. It was short, in verbal code, and signed by Magnum. You are recalled herewith, he read. Assignment cancelled. Agreement concluded with Sweaty, relinquishing all claims, so-called Jorgensen's system. 
Utmost importance that under no, repeat, no circumstances, classified intelligence regarding Soweti be divulged to locals. Advise your depart instanter. Soweti occupation imminent. Retief looked thoughtfully at the scrap of paper, then crumpled it and dropped it on the floor. He turned to Bo Bergman, took a tiny reel of tape from his pocket. This contains information, he said. The Soweti attack plan. A defensive plan instructions for the conversion of a standard air acceleration unit into a potent weapon. If you have a screen handy, we'd better get started. We have about 72 hours. In the briefing room at Svea Tower, Tove snapped off the projector. A plan would have been worthless against that, he said. We assumed they'd make the strike from a standard in-line formation. The scheme of hitting all our settlements simultaneously, in a random order from all points, would have been helpless. It's perfect for this defensive plan, Bergman said, assuming this anti-actric works. It works, Retief said. I hope you've got plenty of heavy power lead available. We export copper, Tove said. We'll assign about two hundred vessels to each settlement. Linked up, they should throw up quite a field. It ought to be effective up to about fifteen miles, I'd estimate, Torf said, if it works as it's supposed to. A red light flashed on the communications panel. Torf went to it, flipped a key. Tower, Torf here, he said. I've got the ship on the scope, Torf, a voice said. There's nothing scheduled. ACI 228 bypassed at 1600. Just one. A lone ship coming in on a bearing of 291-456-653 on manual, I'd say. How does this track key in with the idea of ACI-228 making a manual correction for a missed automatic approach? Retief asked. Tove talked to the tower, got a reply. That's it, he said. Along before he touches down, Tove glanced at a lighted chart. Perhaps eight minutes. Any guns here? Tove shook his head. That's old 228 she ain't got but one of the 50mm rifle, Chip said. She can't figure on jumping the old planet. Hard to say what she figures on, Wheatie said. My Tony will be in a mood for drastic measures. I wonder what kind of deal the skunk got with the sweaties, Chip said. Probably he gets the scavenger after the sweaties kill off the Jorgensons. He's upset about her leaving him without saying goodbye, Chip, Wheatie said. And you left the door hanging open, too, Chip cackled. Oh, Mr. Tony don't look so good to the sweaties now, eh, mister? Wheatie turned to Bo Bergman. Chip's right, he said. A sweaty died on the ship and a tourist got to the cordon. Tony's out to redeem himself. He's on final now, the tower operator said. Still no contact. We'll know soon enough what he has in mind, Tove said. Let's have a look. Outside, the four men watched the point of fire grow, evolve into a ship ponderously settling to rest. The drive faded and cut. Silence fell. Inside the briefing room, the speaker called out. Paul Bergman went inside, talked to the tower, motioned to the others. Over to you, the speaker was saying. There was a crackling moment of silence, then another voice. Illegal entry. Send the two of them out. I'll see to it they're dealt with. Tove flipped a key. Switch me direct to the ship, he said. Right. You on AC-228, Tove said. Who are you? What's said to you? You weren't cleared to berth here. Do you have an emergency aboard? Never mind that, you, the speaker rumbled. I tracked the boy in. I got the lifeboat on the screen now. They haven't gone far in nine hours. Let's have them. You're wasting your time, Tove said. There was a momentary silence. You think so, huh? The speaker blared. I'll put it to you straight. I see two guys on their walk out in one minute, or I open up. He's bluffing, Chip said. The pop gun won't bear on us. Take a look out the window, Wheatief said. In the white glare of the moonlight, a loading cover swung open at the stern of the ship, dropped down and formed a sloping ramp. 
A squat and massive shape appeared in the opening, trundled down onto the snow-swept tarmac. Chip whistled. Told you the captain was slippery, he muttered. What the devil he get that at? What is it? Tove asked. A tank, Retief said. A museum piece by the look of it. I'll say, Chip said. That's a Bolo Rosatus, Model M. Built maybe two hundred years ago in Concordia times. Packs a wallet too, I'll tell you. The tank wheeled, brought a gun muzzle to bear in the base of the tower. Send them out, the speaker growled. Oh, I blast them out. One round in here and I've had a wasted trip, Retief said. I'd better go out. Wait a minute, mister, Chip said. I got the glimmerings of our idea. Well, stall them, Tove said. He keyed the mic. AC228, what's your authority for this demand? I know that machine, Chip said. My hobby, old-time fighting machines. Built a model of a Rosatus once, inch to the foot, a beauty. Now let's see. Chapter 7 The icy wind blew snow crystals stingingly against Retief's face. Keep your hands in your pockets, Chip, he said. Numb hands won't hack the program. Yeah, Chip looked across at the tank. Used to think that was a pretty thing, that Rosatus, he said. Looks mean now. We're taking the target's eye view, Retief said. Sorry I had to get mixed up in this, old timer. Miss myself in. Done good thing, too, Chip sighed. I like these folks, he said. And boys don't like letting us come out here, but I'll give them credit. They seen it had to be this way. And they didn't set the moaning about it. They're tough people, Chip. Funny how it sneaks up on you, ain't it, mister? A few minutes ago, we was eating eye on the og. Now we're right close to being dead men. They want us alive, Chip. It'll be a airy deal, mister, Chip said. But to hell with it. If it works, it works. That's the spirit. I hope I got him fields of fire, right? Don't worry. I bet a barrel of beer we make it. We'll find out in about ten seconds, Chip said. As they reached the tank, the two men broke stride and jumped. Retief leaped for the gun barrel, swung up astride it, ripped off the fur-lined leather cap he wore, and, leaning forward, jammed it into the bore of the cannon. The chef sprang for a perch above the forescanner antenna, with an angry woof anti-personnel charges slammed from apertures low on the sides of the vehicle. Retief swung around, pulled himself up on the hull. OK, mister, Chip called. I'm going under. He slipped down the front of the tank, disappeared between the treads. Retief clambered up, took a position behind the turret, lay flat as if whirling angrily, sonar eyes searching for its tormentors. The vehicle shuddered, backed, stopped, moved forward, pivoted. Chip reappeared at the front of the tank. It's stuck, he called. He stopped to breathe hard, clung as the machine lurched forward, spun to the right, stopped, rocking slightly. Take over here, Retief said. He crawled forward, watched as the chef pulled himself up, slipped down past him, feeling for the footholds between the treads. He reached the ground, dropped on his back, hitched himself under the dark belly of the tank. He groped, found the handholds, probed with a foot for the tread-jack lever. The tank rumbled, backed quickly, turned left and right in a dizzying sine-curve. Retief clung grimly, inches from the clashing treads. The machine ground to a halt. Retief found the lever, braced his back, pushed. The lever seemed to give minutely. He set himself again, put both feet against the frozen bar and heaved. With a dry rasp, it slid back. Immediately two heavy rods extended themselves, moved down to touch the pavement, grated. The left track creaked as the weight went off it. Suddenly the tank's drive raced, and Retief grabbed for a hole as the right tread clashed, heaved the fifty-ton machine forward. The jacks screeched as they scored the tarmac, then bit in. The tank pivoted, chips of pavement flying. The jacks extended, lifted the clattering left track clear of the surface as the tank spun like a hamstrung buffalo. The tank stopped, sat silent, 
canted now on the extended jacks. Retief emerged from under the machine, jumped, pulled himself above the anti-personnel apertures as another charge rocked the tank. He clambered to the turret, crouched beside Chip. They waited, watching the entry hatch. Five minutes passed. About old Tony's given the chauffeur L, Chip said. The hatch cycled open. A head came cautiously into view, in time to see the needler in Retief's hand. Come on out, Retief said. The hand dropped. Chip snaked forward to ram a short section of steel rod under the hatch near the hinge. The hatch began to cycle shut, groaned, stopped. There was a sound of metal failing, and the hatch popped open. Retief half rose, aimed the needler. The walls of the tank rang as the metal splinters ricocheted inside. It's one kick of beer I owe you, mister, Chip said. Now let's get out of here before the ship lifts and fries us. The biggest problem the Jorgensen's people will have is decontaminating the wreckage, Retief said. Magnan leaned forward. Amazing, he said. They just keep coming, did they? Are there no intership communication? They had their orders, Retief said, and their attack plan. They followed it. What a spectacle, Magnan said. Over a thousand ships, plunging out of control one by one as they entered the stress field. Not much of a spectacle, Retief said. You couldn't see them. Too far away. They all crashed back in the mountains. Oh, Magnan's face fell. But it's as well they did. The bacterial bombs. Too cold for bacteria. They won't spread. Nor will the Soeti, Magnan said smugly. Thanks to the promptness with which I acted in dispatching you with the requisite data. He looked narrowly at Retief. By the way, you're sure no uh, message reached you after your arrival. I got something, Retief said, looking Magnan in the eye. It must have been a garbled transmission. It didn't make sense. Magnan coughed, shuffled papers. This information you've reported, he said hurriedly. This was a fantastic story that Soweti originated in the cloud, that they're seeking a foothold in the main galaxy because they've literally eaten themselves out of subsistence. How did you get it? Zivano to Soweti, we attempted to question. Ah, Magnan coughed again. That was an accident, he finished. We got nothing from them. The Jorgensons have a rather special method of interrogating prisoners, Retief said. They took one from a wreck, still alive but unconscious. They managed to get the story from him. He died of it. It's immaterial, actually, Magnan said. Since the Soveti violated their treaty with us the day after it was signed, had no intention of fair play. Far from evacuating the agreed areas, they had actually occupied half a dozen additional minor bodies in the weight system. Retief clucked sympathetically. You don't know who to trust these days, he said. Magnan looked at him coldly. Spare me your sarcasm, Mr. Retief, he said. He picked up a folder from his desk, opened it. By the way, I have another task for you, Retief. We haven't had a comprehensive wildlife census report from Brimstone lately. Sorry, Retief said. I'll be tied up. I'm taking a month off. Maybe more. What's that? Magnan's head came up. You seem to forget. I'm trying, Mr. Counselor, Retief said. Goodbye now. He reached out and flipped the key. Magnan's face faded from the screen. Retief stood up. Chip, he said, we'll crack that keg when I get back. He turned to Anne-Marie. How long, he said, do you think it will take you to teach me to ski by moonlight? <laughs>